Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, we're talking about Zora Neale Hurston, the author of the famous novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, a seminal Florida text. I wrote about Zora back in 2019, a brief summary of her life and work, admittedly, but I've wanted to return to her life story for so long, and now that I have, this is, I think, the first in a long series of episodes. I I have done so much research for this episode that I have stumbled onto a bunch more stories about Zora that I think we need to talk about, so I'm hoping to talk about Zora a lot more than I have in the last three years, so this is kind of the beginning of something new. We're going to hear a lot from Zora pretty much every season. Now, she is a crucial figure to Florida history and did so much for Florida culture and and Florida's place in the country. It cannot be overstated. So I'm eager to explore more of her life. But today we're talking about Zora's folk tales, how Zora Neale Hurston became a collector of folk stories, and how her book Mules and Men, my favorite of her books, became a crucial piece of Florida culture. She was an anthropologist. She collected folk stories and folk tales from Florida to catalog what the culture of Floridians, specifically black Floridians, was like in the 1920s and before, stretching back for generations. So that is what makes this book, Mules and Men, so unique and how it came to be is such an amazing story. But I want to tell you a story before we start talking about Zora herself. As I mentioned, I have been wanting to return to writing about Zora for a long time, basically since I wrote that first episode back in 2019, and I knew that I wanted to write about her folklore and anthropology. It's it's always something that's fascinated me. And when it came time to write today's episode, I went in search of a book that could dig deep into this era of Zora's life. One book stood above the rest, and it is called Wrapped in Rainbows. It's written by a woman named Valerie Boyd. Valerie Boyd is an author, a professor, and a scholar who wrote Wrapped in Rainbows back in 2003. I bought a copy for research and have spent the ensuing weeks poring over the book, taking notes, dog-earing pages, and just enjoying Valerie Boyd's incredibly rich writing, jumping back and forth in Zora's life, filling in context when it's needed, and including details that paint Zora as the stunningly unique person that she was. Wrapped in Rainbows is an unbelievable biography. So naturally, I did what I always do when I find a book that I want to highlight on the show, and I reached out to the author directly. Valerie Boyd got back to me in January, agreeing to chat about her book, as well as a new collection of Zora essays that was being published that month. That collection of essays is called You Don't Know Us Negroes, and and I looked into it, and I'm very much looking forward to reading it. I followed up with Valerie a few times, hoping to find the right time for us to chat about Zora, but unfortunately... Um, very sadly and, and tragically, Valerie Boyd passed away on Saturday, February 12th, 2022, uh, just over a week ago now. She was 58 years old. Uh, I am grateful that I had even a passing conversation uh, with this person and, and that she said that she was happy to talk about Zora. I think it's worthwhile to note that in the email that I received from her, she was pointing me to more literature, to that collection of essays by Zora. I, I didn't know Valerie Boyd. I, I didn't get to speak to her as much as I would have really liked to. But to be reading her book and, and to be in the process of having her on the show only for... Uh, us to lose her, for the people who cared about her to lose her, and for those of us who enjoy her work to lose her. Uh, I'm very sad about it, if I'm being honest with you. Her book, Wrapped in Rainbows, has really illuminated the life of Zora for myself, and certainly for so many others who have read 
what is essentially a masterpiece of a biography, her, her, her life work. That book has informed the entire creation of this episode and will inspire, as I've told you, many more episodes about Zora Neale Hurston. So uh, you're going to hear her name a lot in this episode. Her quotes and research are exceptional and thorough and, and just incredible. I cannot extend proper gratitude to Valerie Boyd and and I wish I could have because this book is is uh really something special. I'm not quite sure what else to say other than I want you to read this book if you care about Zora, if you care about Florida history, if it's something that matters to you, you should read Wrapped in Rainbows and and read this incredible text and uh I guess the only thing left to say is is that I hope Valerie Boyd rests in peace. And uh, I am very, very, very thankful that she took as much time to write as incredible of a book, uh, a gift to fans of Zora in the form of Wrapped in Rainbows. I'm glad that I get to have some small part in spreading the word of this book because it is incredible. If you want to know about Zora, Wrapped in Rainbows is the book for you. So thank you to Valerie Boyd for that. Okay, now let's talk about Zora Neale Hurston because... This is an incredible story. We begin our story not in Florida, but in Manhattan. Zora Neale Hurston arrived to the neighborhood of Harlem in January of 1925, right around her 34th birthday. Though she was born in Alabama and moved to Florida as an infant, the city of Eatonville was her home. Eatonville is an essential city in Greater Orlando, one of, if not the first black municipality in the United States, a jewel in Florida's history. Eatonville still exists to this very day, a beautiful town. Eatonville was incorporated in 1887 and was a city for only four years when Zora was born in 1891. She would spend a large portion of her life claiming she was born in 19. 19- 01, 10 years later. This was apparently because of an age restriction when she started attending college. It's it's just one of those strange things about Zora's life. She went on to get her associate's degree at Howard University and pursued more higher education even as she began working, but it was after she left Howard that she went up to the iconic neighborhood of Harlem on the island of Manhattan. Founded by Dutch immigrants in 1658, Harlem was named for a city in the Netherlands. As New York City burst up around Harlem, the area began to develop and grow. Before the turn of the century, European immigrants populated Harlem, but as 1900 approached, black residents moved into the tall structures that had popped up in Harlem, filling an increasing number of vacant apartments. Quote, by World War I, much of Harlem was firmly established as a black residential and commercial area. End quote. Over the ensuing years, as the 1920s approached, the residents of Harlem took to making art about their lives, about their homes, and about their experience as black Americans in the 20th century. This artistic movement became known as the Harlem Renaissance. Put plainly, so much of American culture that we have today can trace its roots back directly to the art that was created in the Harlem Renaissance. So many of the most brilliant creators of the 20th century were living and or working in Harlem at that time, creating art that would shape culture for the ensuing century. For example, jazz and big band music evolved from the blues at this time, launching the careers of people like Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and Cab Calloway, all three of whom performed in Harlem at this time. The sensational dancer Josephine Baker did some of her earliest dancing work in New York 
at the time of the Harlem Renaissance. James Weldon Johnson, himself a Florida native born in Jacksonville, was much older than most figures during the Harlem Renaissance, being in his 50s when the Renaissance was in full swing. He was a very well-respected writer, having written the famous hymn, Lift Every Voice and Sing, and spending a large portion of his life working for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP. When he lent his support to the Harlem Renaissance alongside one of the founders of the NAACP, W.E.B. Du Bois, it was clear. This renaissance was something very, very special, and everyone seemed to buy into what it meant for people. Naturally, the renaissance was attractive, especially to black artists who were looking to make their mark on the world. Zora Neale Hurston was one such artist. Zora seemed to fall in love with the environment that Harlem provided her. According to Valerie Boyd, quote, Harlem in 1925 was a place where being black was not a burden, but an act of beauty, end quote. Zora didn't need to feel unsafe or watched in Harlem. She could just be. Zora apparently wrote about Harlem, quote, At certain times, I have no race. I am me, end quote. She had already started writing by the mid-twenties, publishing a play called Colorstruck and putting out essays and poems in magazines that were promoting the Harlem Renaissance. It seems as though Zora knew everyone in Harlem at the time, meeting with the singers, writers, authors, performers, and producers who were ruling the Renaissance. By 1926, using her connections, she had started publishing a literary magazine called Fire, with two exclamation points in the title, Fire. One of her colleagues at Fire was also an author, a poet, actually, one of the most important in American poetry. His name is Langston Hughes. Born in 1901, the same year that Zora claimed she was born, Langston had been writing poetry since he was a child, writing about his life and experiences in a new, stunning style. His most famous poem is simply called Harlem. You probably read it in school. It's where Raisin in the Sun comes from, that very famous quote, which turned into a very famous play. If you haven't read Harlem by Langston Hughes, it's short and perfect. Look it up. Look up all of Langston Hughes's work. He was a foundational poet of 20th century American poetry, and he was Zora's best friend for some time. They were very close collaborators. They traveled together. They worked together. They were close. They worked on fire together, but they also worked on other projects, but we'll come back to that in a moment. It was in February of 1927 that Zora was given the project that would put her on her career path as an anthropologist. A famous anthropologist by the name of Franz Boas had given Zora a fellowship for a specific task. Patrons put up grants in order for Zora to spend six months, six whole months, starting in February, traveling around, gathering folktales in the American South, specifically folklore from black Southerners. Valerie Boyd says, quote, when Boas asked Hurston where she wanted to work, she did not hesitate. Florida, she told him. The state drew people from all over the country, she reasoned, end quote. That is actually how Zora's introduction of Mules and Men begins. The approval of the project, Dr. Boas asking where she wanted to go, and her choosing Florida. In her own words, Zora says, quote, and then I realized that I was new to myself, so it looked sensible for me to choose familiar ground. End quote. That is, I think, one of the great pieces of writing advice. They always say, 
write what you know. And, and that's what Zora wanted to do. She knew that she was going into anthropology, which was a field she didn't have tremendous experience in. So if she was going to be doing this, why not go home? Why not go somewhere that she knew already extremely well? So Zora acquired a car that she soon began calling Sassy Susie and <laughs> took off in search of stories. She had her sights set on her hometown, Eatonville, Florida. Before we talk about what this book is, what this book became, and what lies within it, we need to talk about what she was looking for, what Zora was in search of. There's a big word that I'm going to use a lot that, that was talked about a lot at this time, the word folklore. The American Folklore Society has a website. I'm not joking. This website is literally called whatisfolklore.org. <laughs> which made me laugh when I found it. That, that's directly to the point, right? The aptly named website describes folklore as, quote, our cultural DNA. It includes the art, stories, knowledge, and practices of a people, end quote. That is a bit broad, especially nowadays when pop culture is so tied up with our cultural identity. But we're talking a century ago. So in the context of what Zora was doing in the 1920s, folklore is shared stories and songs and beliefs that were part of the culture of those she was seeking out. Nowadays, folklore still exists in so many ways. I mean, superstitions are a thing. Urban myths are a thing. The ways that we communicate, the, the linguistic tricks that come with communicating with people, that is, in many ways, folklore. So that was the sort of stuff that Zora was looking for at this time. She was looking for the fabric of people's lives, the, the way that they communicated, the things that made up their shared belief systems. And so she went in Eatonville to get started. Zora was collecting stories that were sort of like fairy tales of talking animals with morality play style structures. She was gathering the things that mattered to the communities she was visiting. She collected songs and poems, including hymns that had come up during the time of slavery. She was gathering the things that mattered to the communities she was visiting and taking them down, hoping to collect a tome of all the things she discovered person by person town by town. Anthropology is the study of human beings and human behavior, and though that is something done in very clinical ways, Zora was doing it by going to the people and recording what she encountered for future preservation. That's what a lot of anthropologists do, and Zora was doing it in Florida. In the introduction to Mules and Men, Zora says, quote, Folklore is not as easy to collect as it sounds. The best source is where there are the least outside influences, and these people, being usually underprivileged, are the shyest. They are most reluctant at times to reveal that which the soul lives by." End quote. This was no easy task, getting people to agree to tell the stories of their lives and the tales they've known since childhood, the songs they would sing at work, the little private rituals that they would do to make themselves feel at home, the things that they taught to their kids and their parents had taught them. It was a tough task to gather these things properly, which is why, when she had to start, Zora admitted she chose the easiest place to start. In Eatonville, she wasn't published author and Harlem artisan Zora, quote, I was just Lucy Hurston's daughter, Zora, end quote. In the opening of Mules and Men, she presents one of my favorite images in all of her writing, just Zora in a car cruising down the road toward home. According to her, she immediately saw familiar faces. 
when she told her friends in Eatonville why she was there, why she came to collect their stories, they were a bit confused. Why would anybody want to hear our stories about talking animals or the songs that we sing to each other? Zora suggested she wanted to record them, quote, before it's too late, end quote. Too late for what was the reply, and Zora answered, quote, before everybody forgets all of them, end quote. According to Valerie Boyd, this trip to Eatonville was extremely rewarding for Zora. Quote, Zora fully recognized and appreciated the affirmation that was inherent in a town such as Eatonville, where black culture flourished free from the burdensome, acquisitive white gaze. End quote. She enjoyed returning to Eatonville after spending so much time in Harlem and seeing the similarities between the two towns. While she did collect stories, many of which are richly transcribed in Mules and Men, I cannot recommend that you read it enough. Seriously, I read it so much for the preparation of this episode. It's so good. But Valerie Boyd says that Eatonville didn't quite bring everything to Zora that she needed. She would go on to spend years doing anthropological work after this first trip, and she reminisced later that while she enjoyed that first visit, it didn't bring up as many stories as she would have liked. She had to move on from Eatonville and see what else was out there. But the rest of the South was not as kind as Eatonville was, and, quote, Zora packed a chrome-plated pistol, end quote. She was ready for whatever the roads had in store for her. Zora was new to anthropology and was receiving pressure from her bosses, specifically Franz Boas, and Zora admitted that she felt she needed more time to create the project that she was working on. She felt that the time constraint of six months was not enough. She struggled as well to draw the line between being a quote-unquote social scientist and being a person in the world who just enjoyed these stories and interacted with them. She was a fun person. She had a big personality. She liked connecting with people. Sometimes she would get a little too mixed up in people's lives instead of just observing from an outside perspective, but it's only natural. That's who she was. Back in Harlem, Zora had been no stranger to parties. She loved to sing, loved to dance, loved to entertain with a story of her own, but Zora couldn't be the story or the storyteller. She had to gather them. This wasn't just sitting around and listening and transcribing. Zora realized that this was hard work and she was learning in the field how difficult of a task it was that she was doing. She kept on going, meeting strangers, gathering tales, driving along in Sassy Susie and doing the best she could at the job she had been giving. Help she had so much going on that she got married in the middle of this. I mean, this was a really crazy period of her life. But but the story of her marriage is, is a story for another day. But know this, as she was traveling, Zora was living and struggling and writing. Summer eventually came, and Zora started one particularly important task. She interviewed a man named Cujo Lewis, quote, widely believed to be the sole survivor of the last slave ship to land in the United States. End quote. Zora's posthumously published book, Barracoon, is about him. It's an incredible book. You should read it. It's a fascinating story. She was in Mobile, Alabama to work on this project with Cujo Lewis, and it was there that she ran into her dear friend, Mr. Langston Hughes. At this point, Zora and Langston had likely known each other for about two years, having met in 1925. They'd worked on Fire, the magazine, together, and other projects in Harlem, and had become close friends. Zora had taken on a quote-unquote big sisterly attitude with Langston, though she said they were born in the same year she was 10 years his senior. Zora still had some work to do in the South on her book, but she was generally headed back in the direction of New York, and so was Langston. So instead of taking any other route north, he decided to hop into Sassy Susie with Zora and finish her quest by her side. 
Apparently, Langston had spent this trip in the south in cities and urban centers while Zora was traversing the more rural corners of this region. Zora showed Langston what the quieter segments of the south looked like, what the country looked like. This next quote is maybe my favorite quote in Valerie Boyd's book. It, it paints such a clear picture to me. She says, quote, The pair stopped frequently to pick up folk songs and tall tales to meet guitar players and conjure doctors, to visit small town jukes and country churches, end quote. Can't you just see that? Can't you just see the movie of Langston and Zora playing out in your mind? These two charming, brilliant writers roaming from town to town, having a wonderful time meeting these characters that populated the country and gathering these little pieces of culture that, that mattered to them. I can just see them working together and doing the anthropological work, but I can also picture them smiling and joking and having one hell of a road trip together. It's so clear in my mind. It, it makes me very happy to imagine these two friends on this trip. They visited other peers and colleagues from their lives and from the Renaissance who had made their way to the South, checking in with fellow artists as they went... They spent the whole of August traipsing through the American South, gathering tales new and old as they went. But as much work as they had accomplished together, Zora felt she hadn't turned in sufficient product at the end of it, not work up to the quality she was hoping for. Franz Boas, who had sent her out on the journey, agreed, and it left Zora frustrated. She felt that the things that she had been turning into Franz, the, the things that she was turning in as a final project, it, it just wasn't good enough. She felt she could do better, and she was eager to try again. That new opportunity came literally within the same year, the same month, in fact. When she returned to Harlem in September of 1927, she met a patron named Charlotte Osgood Mason, a white woman in Manhattan who had used large portions of the fortune she had acquired from birth and inheritance to fund the art of black artists during the Harlem Renaissance. Langston Hughes actually introduced Zora to Charlotte Mason. They had themselves a contract, and with this new funding opportunity available, Zora signed a contract to get a second chance at being an anthropologist. By the beginning of 1928, Zora was out on the road again, but eventually she, quote, moved into the living quarters of the Everglades Cypress Lumber Company in Loman, Florida, end quote. She was just south of Orlando, working with timber workers and gathering their songs and stories. Though it took some time to get the people of that camp to trust her, Zora was soon drinking and singing with the entire lumber company. They would have parties and, quote, she was enjoined to sing John Henry at every party she attended, and she attended every one, end quote. Zora made herself a part of the community at this lumber company, and because of that, they brought her their stories with glee. She suddenly was in love with the work that she was doing. She had always enjoyed it, but based on what Valerie Boyd says, this was a different period. She knew that she was locked in. Zora knew that she was gathering stories and doing writing that was really, really special. She was proud of what she was creating. But there was a catch. Charlotte Mason, the patron, had put a stipulation on the contract that Zora had signed. None of the work that Zora was collecting could be published. All of that work belonged to Charlotte. That was a problem for many, many reasons. One such reason being that Zora really wanted to turn these stories into a book. She wanted to publish them, put them out into the world, especially these stories she was collecting at the lumber camp, and, and she wanted to publish it under her name, no one else's. 
the chapter dedicated to this camp in both Mules and Men and in Wrapped in Rainbows is so fascinating. We're going to have to talk about it another time. We're going to have to talk about Loman, Florida and this lumber company because the things that Zora did in this camp is such an interesting story. But eventually, Zora moved on. So we will for now as well. She spent the next several months never staying in one place, really. She was in New Orleans, New York, Florida, Jacksonville, and Miami. She even went to the Bahamas. She went everywhere. There was so much to see, and she collected her work, her folklore, wherever she went. She went from a casual, friendly anthropologist to a full-on collector, taking in everything with a fervor. At the end of Mules and Men, there was even sheet music. She was collecting everything but she wanted to publish that work under her name she wanted to own it compile it and make it her own charlotte mason stood in her way over several months from 1928 into 1929 and onward the relationship between mason and zora eroded with charlotte mason employing increasingly in my opinion manipulative tactics and taking to say bigoted things about Zora in order to justify her own behavior. She would say really terrible things about Zora and Langston, about the kinds of people they were, and it made Zora upset, And because Zora liked Charlotte Mason. They were friends, and obviously Zora got a salary from Charlotte. This was her job, so her livelihood was at stake, and this relationship was starting to grow very, very tenuous. At the same time, the Great Depression was ramping up, making New York a difficult place to be. And also at the same time, unfortunately, Zora's friendship with Langston Hughes had met a breaking point and their close friendship fell apart. That is, unfortunately, another story for another time. One that I'm very much not looking forward to telling you, if I'm being honest. I'm, I'm very sad that that friendship ended. So Zora was feeling low. She had... So much work behind her, stuff that she was really proud of, but there was a restriction on her ability to publish it. Her relationship with her patron, with her boss, basically, was at odds. Her friendship was falling apart, and even the town that she had fallen in love with, a second home, was facing some dire straits. I can imagine that the beginning of the 1930s was a very tough time to be Zora Neale Hurston. Zora's contract with Charlotte Mason officially came to an end in March of 1931. Her friendship with Charlotte Mason would eventually resume, but never as intensely as it did a year or two earlier. In 1932, after years of near-constant work and change and emotional turmoil with friends and colleagues, Zora spent some time back in the Sunshine State. She took a break from all of the traveling, from all of the gathering, and she went back to Eatonville. It was here in central Florida, in her hometown, that Zora started writing. Zora was now able to work with all of the folklore that she had gathered from all of the years that she had spent traveling around the South collecting stories. She started taking all of the folktales that she had collected and turning them into something. She didn't know what at first. In the foreword to Mules and Men that was added to the text in 1990, author Arnold Rampersad says that the final text of Mules and Men includes, quote, material gathered mainly from 1927 and 1928 with additional work up to 1931 and 1932, end quote. According to those around her at the time, Zora was in good spirits. A lot of pressure had been following her around for years now, but now, free from the bad and some of the good things, Zora had a chance to put all the work she had compiled down. She also, side note, put on a play at that time with the Rollins Theater Department, my alma mater. 
So expect a full episode about that very soon because I have about a million questions about that chapter of her life. But anyway, in this time, in this stillness, after all of this chaos, Mules and Men was coming together. It was a manuscript basically done for years. And then in October of 1935, the book was out in the world. Between that trip to Eatonville when she wrote Mules and Men and its actual publication, she had actually published a novel, Jonah's Gourdvine. But Mules and Men was the culmination of work that she had been doing for eight years. The final result is a collection of her writing covering stories in both Florida and New Orleans, covering songs and stories, religious practices and cultural traditions, and even collections of hoodoo rituals that she witnessed in her trips. Now, I can speak to my feelings on this 80-something-year-old book and tell you that I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's truly incredible. It's a portrait of life long gone by that feels just as vibrant and true and vivid as it did back then. But critics at the time were equally enamored. They also loved it. Valerie Boyd highlights one review from the time from Henry Lee Moon. He said, quote, Alert and keenly observant, she studied the mores, folkways, and superstitions, the social and economic life of these people as an essential background for her book. End quote. Valerie calls Zora's role as a character in the book, quote-unquote, semi-fictional weaving herself into the tapestry of the story in a wholly charming and compelling way. She literally has scenes of dialogue where it's her as a sort of author, narrator, host, I guess, so to speak, having dialogue with the people who are getting ready to tell the stories. She says where she's going and what it feels like, but she makes it seem like it was all kind of one trip. It wasn't. It was collected over a long period of time, but having Zora as a person in her own story is just so charming. It's so good. But on top of that, what makes this book stand out in the time that it was written and published is that throughout the country at the time, it stood in stark contrast to the news that was being published at that time. Valerie Boyd says, quote, The novels and the newspaper accounts of the day, especially those that emphasized the lynchings, the courtroom railroadings, and the other very real horrors of racism, offered no hint of the black joy, just as real, that existed alongside these atrocities, end quote. By making the book filled with song and laughter and dancing and celebration, Zora had written a book that stood in contrast to the world that most Americans, especially white Americans, were seeing in the news. In every word that Zora wrote, in every word that she put down, in every tale she collected, Zora Neale Hurston would change people's minds. I've loved this book as long as I've held it in my hand, all the way back in 2019 when I read it for the first time. It's it's just something very, very, very special. But having read Valerie Boyd's expertly drawn timeline of Zora's life and all the things that Zora was doing as she worked on Mules and Men, I have an even greater fondness for the book. It was not something that Zora created easily, not something that came together like magic. It was a hard-fought journey, and the finished result is a collection of folklore that is immortalized forever by her pen. So as much as I would love to sit here and have something profound to say, some wisdom about Florida and her people to impart, a last word on why this book matters and, and why the people who tell these stories matter, I don't have anything important to say. Zora has already said it. Everything that I could possibly think of, she's already said it better than I ever could with more wisdom than I will ever have a century before I could even think it. She is... 
the best. She is the person who did it first. She is our anthropologist. So I think Zora deserves the final word in today's episode. It's a strange little thing, but in the 1930s, as part of a different project, which again, we're going to have to do an episode about this, but Zora actually recorded some of the work songs that she gathered in Mules and Men. And so this is actually a recording from 1939 of her singing the song Mule on the Mount. She published that song word for word in Mules and Men, but here's her actually singing Mule on the Mount. How this recording exists is an incredible story. We'll talk about it. But for now, I want to leave you with Zora's voice because that's that's really what matters. She was writing stuff and including her voice in these stories because she knew that she was a part of the story just as much as the people who were telling the story were. So, I leave you with Zora Neale Hurston. Well, I heard the first verses I got in my native village of Edenville, Florida from George Thomas. I'm going to sing, oh, I guess... All the, the tune is the same. I'm going to sing verses from a whole lot of places. Captain got a mule, mule on the mound, call him Jerry. Captain got a mule, mule on the mound, call him Jerry. Going to ride him down. Lord, Lord, I'm ride him down. I got a woman, she shakes. I got a woman to shake like jelly all over. Ha, her hips so broad. Lord, Lord, her hips so broad. My little woman, she had a baby this morning. Ha, my little woman, she had a baby this morning. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show, or if this is your first episode, welcome. Thanks for coming. I'm glad to have you. I would recommend that you listen to my first episode about Zora Neale Hurston, but it is so comically short. It's like maybe 20 minutes long. It's such a brief summary of her life, but it goes a little bit more in depth into how her life played out in a short episode, believe me. But if you want to read more about it, I'd recommend go checking it out. But Zora's life is something that we're just going to be exploring for as long as I make this show, basically. There's so many things to explore. I mean, just reading Wrapped in Rainbows is is a great way to get to know it. So it is with that that I tell you this. Please read Wrapped in Rainbows. If you care about Zora, if you care about Florida's history, read this book. It's incredible. It's It's unparalleled. I don't know how this episode would exist. I don't know how any of the Zora episodes I'm going to make would exist without this book. It, it's, it's really a life changer, <laughs> to be honest with you. So read Wrapped in Rainbows. And if you have never read Zora Neale Hurston, what are you doing? Read Zora Neale Hurston. There are so many copies of her books out there in the world. You can get her books at any library, any bookstore, everywhere. Read Their Eyes Were Watching God. Read Mules and Men. Read some of the new stuff. Read Barracoon. Read the stuff that she wrote. She is just as important of a writer today as she was a century ago. So go check out Zora. We're going to spend a lot of time with her in the next couple of years. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible, and it means a lot to me. Spotify, by the way, recently added a rating system, so if you want to leave a five-star review somewhere that isn't Apple Podcasts, you can do so on Spotify as well. That means a lot as well. It, it really helps the show grow. I promise. It really, really does. So you can also follow the show and share our posts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. And if you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at Gmail. Email.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'm very excited about some of the stuff we have coming, but if there is a story you want to hear on this show, shoot me a message. I look forward to hearing from you. The audio of Zora Neale Hurston used in this episode is from the Library of Congress. There is a full list of credits for the song in the episode description. All right, I will be back next Monday with another brand new episode. I am so excited for you to hear it. We have got some amazing stories ahead this season. You are going to love them, especially as spring approaches. I will see you next Monday with a brand new episode. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and I think that this week would be a really good week to start reading a Zora Neale Hurston book. You'll be glad you did. Have a good week. See you next Monday. I got a woman whose pretty butch is too bulldozing. I got a woman, she's pretty butch is too bulldozing. She won't live long, Lord, Lord, she won't live long.